Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari and this is History 101, the great big history podcast. In this episode, we continue our History 101, Ancient Greeks, and do war and government, victory and destruction. So, what kind of army, what kind of military did the ancient Greeks have? Did they have Mesopotamian chariots? No. Do they have mercenaries? Do they hire highly trained professionals from all over the world? No. Do they have a professional, full-time, highly trained citizen soldiery? Like a modern country, like our country does? Where your military is made up of your own citizens and all they do, they don't do any other job but be soldiers? No. Well, there is one exception, and we'll talk about them in a second. Why? Why don't they have any of them? Because, go back to geography, they're poor. There's no money. The mountains make them poor. There's no flat land. There's no money. There's no horses for the chariots. There's no money for the mercenaries. And a professional army is the most expensive of them all. So there's no money for any of this. Now, yes, we have to talk about the exception. The Spartans are the exception to every rule of Greece, especially when it comes to the military. So they don't count when we discuss, quote unquote, Greeks, because they're, they're exceptions. That the, the rules don't apply to them. They stand outside the rules. And so when I say, what kind of army did the Greeks have? And you say, the Spartans had. Well, that's not the Greeks. They're different. So why are they different? They're different because they have an empire inside of Greece, which almost nobody has. The Spartans defeated a larger neighbor city, Messenia, back in somewhere around the 700s BCE. And what they decided to do, they looked at all of these people who outnumbered them. Now, the sources will say it's 10 to 1, but it's, it's not that big. You could not, in the ancient world, hold on to slaves that outnumbered you 10 to 1. Not, not in an age of knives and stabby-stabby. You know, where man, mano a mano, where, where hand-to-hand combat matters. You, you just can't win a battle where it's 10 to 1, no matter how good you are. So it can't be that big. So modern historians have come down somewhere on 3 to 1. You know, they know it's bigger because it scared the Spartans. And the question is, how much bigger? But it is bigger. And so the number I'm using is three to one. That That's some of the modern uh, classical historians. That's the number they've used. And I admi- I like their work, so I, I'm using them. Um, so they looked at all of these people outnumbered them. And somebody said, hey... If we keep these people as slaves, as helots, as helots, we won't have to work anymore. They'll do all the work for us, and I can sit on my porch and drink lemonade. It'll be great. And the other people looked at him and said, that is a great idea. We'll keep these Messenians as slaves. And they turned them into what's called helots, Greek slaves. Now, All Greeks had slaves, but these are different. One, they're Greek slaves. They're fellow Greeks. Two, 
They're living on their own land that is still owned by the Spartans. The Spartans came into someone else's neighborhood and took it over. No one else is doing that. The Thebans aren't doing that. The Athenians are doing that. You could tell me about the Athenian slaves all the time. They ain't doing this craziness. And so do you even keep Greek slaves as a, as, as Greeks, as fellow Greeks as slaves? No, not really. You shouldn't. Why? Because of autonomia. Remember, all Greeks believe in autonomia, in autonomy. Slavery is the opposite of autonomy, which means Greeks make terrible slaves. And so the Helots hate the Spartans and outnumber them three to one, though the ancient sources say it's nine, nine to one. And so the Spartans feel what all slave owners feel, what the American South felt, why they caused the Civil War. What modern Republicans feel is terrified of the people they don't like taking over and treating them how they've been treated. All slave owners, whether it's the Spartans, whether it is the Spanish, whether it is the American South, all have the same problem. They fear the day of a revolution that not only will they be overthrown, but they'll be taken over. Think about what, how a white supremacist feels. Think about how, how do they feel? They live their life that white people, this racist life, that white people are the best people in the whole wide world. So what are they terrified of? They're terrified that black people one day will treat them how they treat black people. And so everything, all of their thought energy, all of their, uh, all of their action energy goes into preventing that from happening. So Sparta needs the Helots not to revolt. Remember, they're outnumbered three to one. If the Helots revolt in number, in mass, the Spartans are going to be in a lot of trouble. So they need the Helots not to revolt. Or if there is a revolt, it's only a few. They need most of the Helots to go, nah, I don't want to revolt. Yeah, my life sucks, but they want that but in there. So how do you get that but in their heads? You create an army that cannot lose. And so the Spartans militarize their society. They're the second people after the Assyrians to do this. Now notice, the Assyrians are doing it after a trauma of being attacked, of being run through by nomadic peoples. So they're doing it to defend themselves. So are the Spartans, even though the Spartans look like they should be the more powerful. They own the Helots. They can kill them. They can do what they want with them. And yet they're terrified of them because they're outnumbered. And so they're going to completely change their society. No one else in Greece does this. And so the Spartans create the barrack system, the Lycurgan system. Boys and girls are separated at the age of seven. They're trained to be badass professional soldiers. The boys, the girls are trained to be badass professional wives and mothers. Because remember, 
if you're going to militarize your society, you have to create boys who can be soldiers, but you also have to create the women who will give birth to the boys and then raise them, at least to a certain age, to be the men, to become the men who will be the most badass soldiers in the world. So, these boys are trained trained to be badass soldiers, but they also torture each other. To be a Spartan is to be abused from the very beginning. The idea being life is hard and you have to be a hard person. They have a strict morality code. And this is something that the other Greeks admire about the Spartans. Spartans do the right thing. Every other, every other Greek and the Athenians and the Corinthians. Forget the Corinthians. The Corinthians are so crazy being the major port city. They have sex and they have drugs and they have all kinds of crazy stuff that there is actually, you know the phrase, when in Rome, when in Rome do as Romans do? That actually comes from Corinth. In the ancient world, it was, it was act like a Corinthian. It's like, it's Vegas. It is what stays in Corinth. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. So compared to that, this kind of like hardcore Mormon, Protestant, uh, strict moral code is very admirable to other Greeks. They think it's weird, but they also admire it. There's a great example of this. Uh, There's a story at one of the Olympic Games. And everyone's sitting there and everyone's getting ready. They got their popcorn and they're eating and they're like, yeah, let's go, let's go. And this old man comes, is starting to, to walk down the stairs. He starts, he's starting at the back. He's looking for, he's an old guy, he's got his cane and he's looking for a seat and nobody wants to give up their seat. No one's like, you know, and, and the idea is like, old people should sit. But if you, he sits, you got to stand. Right? Because there's no other seats. And so no one wants, it's like the subway. No one wants to look at them. No, no, they're just eating and they're talking and they're like, oh, I'm not even here. And he's looking and he's, and then a Spartan youth gets up, comes up to him, goes up the stairs, comes up to him, says, uh, Mr. And this guy is not a Spartan. This guy is just an old Greek dude. And Spartan youth says, Mr., come, come with me. And he comes down to the front row where there's a bunch of Spartan youths and their mentor and their teacher, right? And they all stand up. And they all give their seat to him. Now, he only needs one seat, but they all get up. And they all stand aside. So that he takes technically all of their seats. So that none of them sit. And they all will stand. And I want to say it's Plutarch who tells the story, but I can't be sure. But it's it's a, it's a story. And in the source, it says this about the Greeks. All Greeks knew what the right thing to do was. The Spartans did it. And that we're going to come back to again and again. The Spartans are weird. The Spartans do crazy-ass stuff. The Spartans live a very hard life by their own choosing. They shouldn't have slaves. They shouldn't have these barracks. They shouldn't do what they do. But damn it, it's impressive that they do. They support homosexuality to make better soldiers. 
and we'll talk about how that works when we talk about the phalanx. They they encourage men to love each other, mostly so they don't run away. So when we in the modern army say, oh, you fight for the man next to you, you fight for your brother, like the Spartans took that literally. They encouraged, um, you still got married, and we'll talk about that in a second, but they encouraged homosexual relationships. Not gay relationships, but homosexual ones. And what's the difference? Well, the gay is the lifestyle. It's where you live as a homosexual person with a homosexual partner or partners, and you, you live as a homosexual person in a homosexual world. And it's a gay lifestyle. Congratulations. That's not the Spartans. The Spartans were heterosexual, heterosocial in their world, but had homosexual relationships in the army. Especially as young, as teenagers, when you didn't have access to any women whatsoever, especially as teenagers in your, in your 20s. So, they also use genetic engineering with kids. Not so uh, to make kids. They, and it's, it's, you know, they don't understand genetics, but they understood horses. They understood animals. And so they understood selective breeding. So they took the fastest kid, the fastest boy, and put him with the fastest girl. I can, I can still tell you from elementary school who that was. It would be Tommy Houston and Debbie Brown, and they would have been married. The entire society would have been like, she's the fastest girl, he's the fastest boy, just wait for them to be 15, 16 years old, and hook them up. Except they had to wait, the boys had to wait till they were 27. And we'll get to that in a minute. But that's the idea, is they'll hook them up. Because, you know, then they would take the smartest boy and the smartest girl and hook them up. And the idea was to get super babies. You got married at 27. That's late. You're supposed to get married at like 16, maybe 18. Girls were certainly supposed to get married by 18. And they, they still do. It's the boys who are getting married at 27. But you're only living with your wife when you turn 35. That's eight years of marriage where you're not living with your wife. So you want to have some nookie? You had to sneak out of your barracks. And your bunkmate's job was to stop you from doing it or to beat the snot out of you if you came back. Why? Because you had to be sneaky about it. Because it made you a better soldier. Everything in this society was to make you a better soldier. So yes, population growth is a problem. The Spartans never have more than 10,000 adult male citizens. Their total army is never more than 10,000. For hundreds of years. Compare that to the Athenians. Who could put 100,000 men into their navy. Without batting an eye about it. Who could lose 25,000 troops in Sicily. And yeah... That sucked. That hurt. And they still could fight on for another 15 years. Compare that to the Romans, who lost 70,000 men in one day at Cannae. At Cannae versus uh, Hannibal. Like, the Romans lost more than seven times the entire Spartan male population in one day. And kept fighting for another 15 years and won. 
And when we get to the Romans, we'll talk about that. But yes, because of genetic engineering, because you had to get, you got married so late, you didn't have a lot of time. Remember, you don't live that long in the Greek world. If you live to be 40, you're old. So by 35, when you get to live with your wife, you're practically retired at that point. You know, you're at the end of your, your lifespan, not at the end of your lifespan, but the end of your job in the phalanx. You're coming to the end. You're about to retire. You're about to age out. You never really ever retire. You're always part of it. But you become emeritus. You become like you're only needed. You're only brought up when you're really needed. So, so population growth is always a problem, but that means wealth is always good. Because you're not sharing more, you're not sharing the same amount of wealth with more and more people. See, the problem with population growth, and this is why China went to the one-child policy in the 80s, if your population growth is at, say, 3%, but your uh, economic income is at 2%, you're actually getting poorer by 1% every year. Or if your your population growth is at 3%, but your GDP, your income growth is at 4%, you're not growing at 4%. You're growing at 1% because that 3% is eating. All those kids that are being born are eating that 4% of economic growth. Literally, and I mean that literally. They literally eat. Because remember, children don't really do any work for the first 18 years of their life or so. So they're an economic negative. So China went to the one-child one child policy back in the 80s because that's exactly the problem they were having. So to get economic growth, he said, you, you got to stop having kids. Basically, Sparta did the same thing. To make better soldiers, we can't have you making kids. We, ha we need you to be a soldier. That has problems down the line. So, so again, Spartans, weird. The other thing that made them weird is that women had super freedoms, including extremely loose sexual freedoms. They're practically Amazons in the Greek world. They could read. They were educated. Why? Because the men went off to fight. And so the women were left behind. This is the Roman women will in some ways have the same uh, freedoms, same education. They had legal and property rights. Why? Because they had to be able to run the farm and be legally entitled to make decisions while their husband was away. You can't, like, write a letter to your husband and be like, so, uh, what should we plant this year? No, she has to be able to be like, my husband's away, he's in Ionia, he's fighting the Persians, he's not going to be back for two or three years, I'm making the decisions. And everyone says, okay. They needed education. Again, to create a better soldier. To create a better son. We'll see this with the Muslims. We'll see this in, with Muhammad. Muhammad, despite the reputation that in Islam, modern Islam does not encourage women to get education, Muhammad is like, women must, must underline, boldface, get an education. That education is the same as men. It's the Quran. Why? Because women have to be able to raise good Muslims. Because Muslim boys and good Muslim girls. And how could a woman raise a good Muslim boy if she doesn't understand the Quran? So she has to be educated in the Quran. And since the Quran is the basis of all knowledge, everyone learns the Quran. And since the Hadith and, and um, 
is part of it and the law code is part of it. They have to learn all of that, just like men. This is the way the USSR worked. That women gain, it's, it's in a more militarized society. The more militarized the men are, the freer the women are. Because you have to free the men from the responsibilities of home to make them better soldiers. The USSR did the same thing with their equality. Now, that doesn't mean women were treated as equal, but that was the theory. It's now, never the practice, but it's the theory. And women, a woman, woman goes into space for the USSR in the 60s. A woman doesn't go into space for America until 1983. Think about that for a second. There are female generals in the USSR in the 40s. There's not a female general in America until at least the 90s, if not the 2000s. Like, think about that. And we're like, oh, the USSR is more slavery. No, really? For a lot of women, it was better. You could work. You could make money. You had, a, you had legal representation in the courts. My mother in the 70s could not get a credit card unless my father approved it in the 70s. Think about that. So Spartan women roamed the earth in a way that no other Greek woman could. They chose their sexual partners. And you go, well, well, wait a minute, why? Well, because all children are Spartan. So if they're born from a Spartan woman, they're going to be. And so while we want them to be married and genetically engineered, if her man ain't doing it and he's not a good enough man, why should she be held back? What if she, you know, while the men are away, shouldn't she be able to have a homosexual relationship too? And so what, the, the weirdest thing is the, the Spartans are slave owners and, in, and for their men and their women, they're incredibly, incredibly restricted on their behavior. And yet at the same time, especially for women, they're more liberal for what they allow women to do compared to other societies. So how do the Greeks fight? They fight in a phalanx. Ordinary men standing shoulder to shoulder forming a box. Why? So you can't run away. If you're watching the video, look at, look at this box. If you're in the middle of this box, you can't move. You can't move side to side. You can't turn around. You cannot run away. You can only move in one direction. That's forward. And only if the guy in front of you moves first. Why would you make this, this organization? Because except for the Spartans, everyone's an ordinary citizen, which means they want to run away. They're scared to death. On a battlefield facing 10,000 people who want to kill you, you pee yourself and you run away. That's what you do. That's the right thing to do. We spend an immense amount of time, money, and energy, and abuse, making it so our soldiers, men and women, don't do that. That instead they move forward into the battle rather than running away.
But remember, the Greeks don't have time to train a professional army. So they make it physically impossible for men to run away. Two, they wear bronze armor. And this is the thing that made the Greeks very scary in battle to fight, especially if you were a non-Greek, because they were covered head to toe. The only thing that was available was their, was their, the, a bit around their necks and their eyes. That's it. Not even the Spartans fought naked because it's dumb. So let's just go back to the video, to the movie, the movie, the 300, where they're, they wanted to show off these guys' bodies. They want to show off how tough the Spartans were. And so they have them fight naked instead of in their armor. But what made Greek soldiers scary was they were like Iron Man. They were covered in 60 pounds of bronze. Do you know how hard it is to punch through that? Swords aren't going to get through it. You can't slice through it. You have to get a spear and punch a hole through it. Which means the phalanx protects against that. Which means they wear war shield. And thus giving the name to the men in the phalanx, a hoplite. The hoplite is a shield. It is an inch thick of wood. So imagine taking out a butcher block and stabbing it with a knife. See how far that gets you. You're not going to get very far in that. And then they covered it with a sheen of bronze on top of that. Now here's the weird thing. This, this shield does not protect the soldier carrying the shield. It protects the man to their left. Why? Well, because the shield is freaking heavy. 15 pounds or so. So, it's heavy. Now, if you take a kite shield, a metal kite shield from the Middle Ages, you know, or even a, a, a Roman shield, the, the, those are designed to protect the soldier themselves. And we'll talk about why when we get to these characters. But what happens is, when you fight, you have a fight, you hold your shield up, you know, they hit it, you strike, you move your shield, you stab back, you either swing or you stab, and you put it back up, and you kill the person, and then you let your arm go down. You relax. Because when you're using a shield to protect yourself, and you're holding it in your hand, all of that weight, that 15 pounds to 20 pounds, is on your wrist. Your wrist just isn't that strong. Go, go to the gym. And take a dumbbell and hold it, crook, crook your elbow about, you know, at a, you know, crook it out, you know, so it's about chest high, nipple high, right? And a little bit out and hold it so that your, your, your fist is out about foot and a half, maybe from your chest, right? Hold it in the middle of your chest and then hold that 15 pounds. I will give you 30 to 45 seconds before it starts to go down. And the moment, remember, the moment it goes down, your head is now exposed, the top of your head. And then it goes down a little bit more. Now your eyes are exposed. And then your mouth. Then your neck. Right? Your, head, your arm is just, your wrist is just not that strong. So you need to constantly rest. What the Greeks did when they fought, they might have a 20-minute, 30-minute battle. Because there's going to be a lot of pushing. There's going to be a lot of, a lot of shoving. 
so they know this. So what did they do? They moved the straps to the left. So you put your arm through the straps and the straps now are on your, um, your, the back of your arm, which means the weight is now on your shoulder. <sighs> now, 15 pounds on your shoulder, you could probably, you could probably press shoulder press 15 pounds all day. You can hold that there for half an hour. You know, you feel it at the end of the day. But you're a tough guy. I know you are. And so you could do that. Your wrist, no. Your shoulder, not a problem. The effect of that is that the shield then protects the person next to you. On your left. Not you. Because we've just moved it six inches to the left. So now your right side is exposed. Now if you're anybody but the guy on the right... That's okay because the guy on your right will protect you. But that also means that the guys on the right are exposed. So what happens is you want to fight in a place, and we'll talk about this in a second, in a place that you're protected on your right. You cannot defend yourself on your right. So if you get attacked from the right or you get attacked from the rear, the phalanx is dead. It's murdered. It is butchered. This is what the Romans will figure out. So if you're the Greeks, you put a river on your side. You put a mountain on your side. You put some piece of geography. Philip II and Alexander will put giant horsemen on that side. You put your heaviest, biggest ass horses with men on them. You put your cavalry on the phalanx's right side. And that protects them. That makes them feel more secure. That will protect them from being attacked from the side. Because they can't, remember, they can't turn. They can't back up. They can't, they cannot defend themselves if they are attacked from the right or the rear. So now that you've got 300 men squished shoulder to shoulder, front to back, uncomfortably close to each other. The guy behind you is as close, it's like a, it's like a kindergarten line it's like a, a, an elementary school line on their way to gym class or, or, or lunch where they're like all together and like, Mrs. M, he's too close to me. Billy's too close to me. And you're like, oh, you just back up a little bit. Like, I can't back up. And it's that kind of thing. Like, you're all too comf uncomfortably close. But that also gives you protection. But that also means there is no weapon you can use except a spear. You can only use a spear. And so this, the, because you can't swing a sword, you'll hit the people next to you. So the spear is a 10-foot-long, give-or-take, spear that you hold in the crux of your arm. You put it underneath your right arm, underneath your underarm, right, you know, where you put your deodorant. And it's weighted, so it hangs there, and it sticks out. And the people in the back are going to hold it up. So, all right, you don't want to have it down. So you'll stab one of your own people in, your, in the back of their heads. That's bad. So you hold it up. And what that turns out to do is it's just a way of carrying the spear, but what it does is it helps deflect arrows coming in. It, it gives a little bit of shade, not from the sun, but from arrows, because arrows are so light that any, any knocking them off, any change in their speed at all changes them from being super deadly to, like, bouncing off of you. Right? So, 
it's 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 momentum. It's gravity. That's that's how the the arrows work. So the they provide a protective cover. So what about a phalanx battle? A phalanx battle is usually Greek versus Greek. The Greeks spend 95% of their time fighting other Greeks. And so what do they do? They find flat land. And in fact, in Herodotus, Xerxes has a spy go out. He has a missionary, a mission diplomat, spy go out. And he's like, I am going to invade Greece. Um, can someone tell me how they fight? Uh, what, was, what, is, what does my army have to do? And the, the spy goes out, and he comes back, and he goes, Dear Xerxes, great king, I have discovered how the Greeks fight. And Xerxes is like, okay, great. I'm here. Uh, cartographers, get ready. Writers, get ready. Okay, what do they do? They find a flat piece of land between two mountains or a mountain and a river, and they run into each other at a high speed. And Xerxes goes, what? And he goes, yeah, it is the dumbest. He, he says this. It is the dumbest form of warfare ever. They can't back up. They can't go around the sides. They can't turn. They can only go straight. So they fight in a mountainous land. Instead of fighting in the mountains, they find flat land and they run into each other as fast as they can. Then they hit each other. They push into each other. So let's show you pushing. They push into each other. They smash in the middle. They push into each other. They kill lots of people like a car crash. And then one side runs away and the other side laughs at them. Erects a tr thing they call a trophy, which in Greek means turning place. You turn the guys. It's where the other guys run away. They erect a trophy and then they have a party waiting for the negotiators of the losing side to come to ask for the bodies of their dead back. And Xerxes looks at this guy and goes, if you are lying to me, I swear I will kill you. And the guy goes, no, you know I'm not lying to you because I could not have made up a dumber form of warfare if I wanted to. <coughs> And he was totally right. He's totally right. It is the dumbest form of warfare. If you don't understand all of the ingredients that got you there, that they're not professional soldiers, they're not mercenaries, they're not mountain men, they're farmers. They want to fight for one day. They can't have an extended guerrilla war that will destroy their farms. They need a day. They're going to fight. They need it to be over. They need a clear win. They need no ties. They need someone to run away. And so that's what happens. So a phalanx battle is a car crash. And in my face-to-face -face classes, I'll probably show this. You can find this in the January 6th riot, the January 6th insurrection, whatever you want to call it, but it's at least a riot, had a phalanx battle in it. The cops defended a door. And it's in the video. You can go and watch. You can't type in Phalanx Battle January 6th because it's too specialized. But if you watch the video from January 6th, and it was if you watch the C-SPAN um, impeachment hearing video, that's where you'll find it. It's about midway through. You see what happens. You see this group of uh, cops get out their shields. 
and they're going to defend this door. Now, what they didn't know was the other doors around were breached. And in testimony, one of the guys said, we thought this was the only door. So we were going to defend this door. And that's a problem because they're looking forward at the guys who are about to attack them. Had the rioters wanted to, they could have come through any of the other doors, come around and just done whatever they wanted to. Shot the cops, stabbed them, done whatever. You know, they could have run into them from the back and destroyed them. Because they couldn't defend themselves. They wouldn't have been able to turn around. But they got their shields out. They're going to defend this thing. And what happened is the rioters met them in the hallway and got 30 rows deep. Five, six, eight people across. The whole hallway across, 30 rows deep. And they push. And they go, push, push. And, they, and you see the sea, it rocks back, and then it moves forward again, and it rocks back, and it moves forward again as they're trying to push through these cops. And they're taking their shields, and they're grabbing each other by the eyes. And you see these, they're, stab, they're trying to stab the cops in the neck, and the cops have their batons, and they're trying to beat these guys back. That's what a phalanx battle was. We had an ancient Greek phalanx battle happen in the capital in January 6th, one side had shields, but not hoplite shields, not shields that protected the man next to them. They had, they had riot squad shields. They had Roman shields that protected the single man. That's a little bit of a problem because what happened was they could pull it off, right? Because he was holding, these cops were holding the, the shields uh, by their hands. And so what happens is a bunch of hands come in, they grab the edges of the shield and they pull, rah, and then they take it and they pick it up and they hit the cops right back in the face with it. That's the problem with holding a shield in your wrist. You, If it was a hoplite shield on the cop's shoulder, he would have been protecting the man next to him. He might have been even more exposed on the right, but they couldn't have stolen his shield. It would have been attached to his arm. All he had to do is hold his arm to his underarm, to, to his chest, and they would never have been able to pull it off. But they're pulling, they're getting their hands inside the helmets. They're moving back. They're rocking back and boom. And rocking back and boom. And what are they using? They're using the weight of the men. All of these 200, 250 pound men rocking back 30 rows deep. Eight men across. Boom. Trying to push a hole through those cops. And I had predicted this happening way earlier. Now, I'll give these cops this. I have, I have immense respect for them. They didn't break. They didn't run. They weren't that deep. They weren't that big. They were definitely outnumbered. And they held. So, fair play to them. But when I was watching the Black Lives Matter protests, I looked at these and went, the cops are dumb. The cops are idiots. Because nobody had instructed the cops how to fight a phalanx battle. The, the clearing of um, Washington, D.C., of the, the uh, Lexington Park or Lafayette Park. You had these guys go out and the lines were thin. And what they relied on was the Black Lives Matter protesters falling back. But you could see it. You could watch it. That they were overconfident. They're like, they're, they won't fight back. Had those Black Lives Matter, 10,000 people stopped and done like the ants in um, 
a bug's life and gripped arms and moved forward, they would have crushed those cops because the cops separated their lines. They were not back to back. They were very thin. There's lots of space between them. One push. And this is why they put up somebody was smart because they put up the walls afterwards around the White House because somebody looked at it and went, holy shit. If they pushed one push, and I'm watching this going, oh my God, these cops are going to get crushed. Because if the Black Lives Matter protesters wanted to, if they moved forward like the January 6th rioters did, they would have punched right through the cops, run them over, and occupied the White House. They would have occupied the at least outside of the White House. They would have run right through them. They didn't use, they didn't counterattack. So when people are like, oh, these Black Lives Matter protesters are full of violence, I'm like, you have no idea how, how it could have happened. Without the wall, they could have taken over the White House. They could have taken over the outside of the White House. The Secret Service would start shooting people inside the White House, of course. But they would have taken over their grounds. They would have come right through that fence without a problem. Because those cops didn't know how to fight a phalanx battle. You need depth. You need all your people to be together. You need them to be moving slowly. They came running out. They were all going to fight and win the battle all by themselves. They wanted to beat the shit out of a bunch of Black Lives Matter protesters, but they wanted to do it individually. And the Black Lives Matter protesters let them. They fell back. They didn't want to fight. They wanted to yell. They wanted to scream. They wanted to protest. They didn't want to fight. Had they turned around, and you should watch these videos, watch the Lexington, the clearing of Lafayette Square, Lafayette Park, watch how thin the cops get and how dangerous it was for the cops that if these Black Lives Matter protesters wanted to, they could have turned around and using their weight, like in a phalanx battle, run right over them. Donald Trump came very close to being besieged. And that's why they put the walls up. Because somebody, somebody in Secret Service looked at how the cops acted and said, holy shit, we're in trouble. They can't defend us. Somebody in Secret Service has taken a history class on Greek battles. Somebody looked at that, that and said, if they had turned around, And so everybody learned the wrong lessons from the clearing of Lafayette's, Lafayette Park. All the cops learned the wrong lessons. They totally, they totally thought all we have to do is be badass. We have to look badass. We have to just scare them. And these, these liberals will just run away. Well, that works until they don't run away. That's what we'll learn with the Romans when the Romans fight the Gauls. The Gauls work the same way. Individuals fighting, scary. They lit their faces on fire. The whole idea was to make their enemy run away, to make the Romans run away. And then the Romans realized, if we just stand, we'll win. We outnumber them. We're tougher than they are. So they have a phalanx battle. And this is how the Greeks fight. They could be these become intermeshed, and sooner or later one side runs away. 
So where do men stand? The youngest men are in the middle, so they can't run away. These are 16 to 20-year-olds, give, give or take. They add weight, but they have very little role. They may never see the enemy they're fighting. The oldest men, the most experienced men, are in the back. These are guys in their 30s, especially 35 and older. They have done it. They did it. They've done it. They're doing it. They, they don't need to brag about it. They're your institutional knowledge. And we see this in the Peloponnesian War. There's a battle against the Thebans that the Athenians are fighting. And all the young men are like, oh, these, these Thebans, these Thebans, they, they defeated us at Delium. You know, uh, what are we going to do? They're scary. And the guys in the back are like, don't worry about them. We kicked their ass 20 years ago. They're a bunch of wimps. Yeah, forget Delium. We already beat them. We'll do it again today. And that's like this institutional knowledge. It's good to have a bunch of old farts in your army. It's really good. If you've ever watched Officer and Gentleman, it really works to have Louis Gossett Jr., a guy who has been there, who has done that, who could teach the new people. Don't worry. It's actually not that scary. Warfare is the scariest thing you could do. And yet, at the same time, not that scary if you know what you're doing. The middle experienced young men are in the front. The men in their 20s, maybe to their early 30s, they're in the front. They want glory. See, they've been in the middle where they get nothing. And you know, if you've ever been on a soccer team, if you've ever played a sport, you know what happens after a game. Especially if you win. You go for pizza and you talk about it and you have a party. The Greeks did the same thing. And so they're going and they're drinking because, remember, there's always drink, drinking, drugs, and sex in parties. No matter what age we're talking about, there's drinking, there's drugging, and there's sex. And there's lots of talk. And so all these guys are talking and there's women and they're, they're all trying to brag, right? And the youngest guys in the middle, you've been there. You've had these parties. You've known this. If they try to make up a story that's not true, the other guys shut them down. Yeah, I was in the front. No, you weren't. Shut up. Go get me some beer. And the young, the middle experienced guys, the guys in their mid-20s, they want glory because they've been in the middle and they've gotten no glory. They've served other guys' beers and they've heard their stories and they want some glory. They want to impress a woman during the party. They want to get some nookie. They want someone to be like, oh, you're the hero. You're so amazing. It's like, yes, I am. So they want to fight in the front row, in the front three rows. You want to cycle into the front three rows because that's where the fighting is. That's where the bravery is. That's where the glory is. That's where your killing is. And that's where your risk is. And you survive that. You don't owe anybody any explanations. You're a man. Meanwhile, the oldest guys are sitting there, old farts with their gray beards or their, their speckled gray beards drinking. And they're like, these kids think this was a battle? Come on, this wasn't a battle. This wasn't... Do, you, do you remember when we fought at Magnesia? That was a battle. Oh, my God, dude. Oh, that was crazy. Do you remember how I killed three of those goals? Oh, that was, you know, you were lucky. You got those three. But if, you, if I hadn't gotten that one guy, he was killed your, knocked your head right off. Yeah, I know. But, you know, I kind of saw it coming, so I probably would have ducked. Yeah, right, you would have ducked. Yeah, whatever. Drink. 
They've been there. They've done that. They're married now. They don't have to impress women. They're secure in their manliness. The youngest men have no reputation. They will have no reputation. The young, the middle experienced young men, the guys in their mid-20s, want to get reputation. So they volunteer for the front. The oldest guys go to the back because they've been there. They've done that. And you need men in the back. Why? Because the oldest men are retiring every year. Or they're dying. And so there's this natural rotation through the army over time of new young men coming in, moving to the front, then moving to the back. Generation. There's generation after generation after generation. It's your junior high to high school to like post-grad college. Post-grad. Right? Or high school to college to post-grad. Right? It, and yet it's this constant flow and it's this, this way of maintaining experience and maintaining knowledge, even though this is not a professional army. So what is the goal? The goal is not to run away. Those who fight longer win. The Spartans never run away. You have to kill every last one of them. There's, in fact, a battle against, I think it's Argos, where they literally are down to two Argonauts and one Spartan. And the Argonauts are like, I'm exhausted. I don't want to kill you. We're going home. And the Spartans are like, go ahead. And they're like, okay. And they go home. And the Spartans are like, you lost. I won. I'm still on the battlefield. <laughs> and he erects a trophy. And you're like... What are you talking about, you crazy-ass Spartan? But they never run away. You literally have to kill, like at Thermopylae, every last one of them. So, so the, since the goal is not to run away, how do you keep men from, from running away in battle? Well, one is you give them armor. One is you force them to be next to each other. The third is you put family next to each other. You put brothers. You put father and son because you're more likely to not run away. Imagine you run away, right? Middle of the battle. It's all craziness. You run away. You go home. You show up at home and your mom's there. What's her first question going to be? Where's your father? Oh, he's still in the battle. Where's your brother? Oh, he's still fighting. What is she going to say to you? She's going to get your ass back there. You don't leave your family members behind. The Thebans and the Spartans, which we've already kind of talked about, go a step further. The Thebans have the sacred band. The Spartans, their entire society encourages this. They had homosexual lovers next to each other. And these were the toughest fighting men in the world. Alexander has to kill every last Theban in the sacred band. And then he weeps about it, about what a waste. With 10,000 of these men, I could have conquered the world. It's a waste to have had to kill them. But they wouldn't surrender and they wouldn't run away. So the idea that homosexual men are somehow swishy or, or girly or feminine, that's not the Greek concept of it. Or there's not the Greek concept in Thebes or in Sparta. The Athenians have a little bit different attitude towards it, but they liked homosexuality too. They had what they call pederasty, where older men and younger boys, not prepubescent boys, but like teenage boys, had relations with each other. You know, the older man was a mentor and taught the younger boy how to be a man. So homosexuality was a perfectly acceptable thing for young men to do. 
also, and you should understand this, you didn't actually have to have sex. When I'm talking about homosexual, you may go, oh, it's just about penetration. It's just about um, um, the, the sex act. It's really not because love was not emotional. It was intellectual. It's, it's like we said in the 90s, bro, bros before hoes. That's, that was Greek love. It's guy love. Guy love was intellectual. It's an intellectual idea. It wasn't emotional like we feel it today. When we talk about love, we talk about an emotion. That's not how the Greeks thought about it. They thought about it as an intellectual idea. You didn't love your wife because your wife couldn't love you. She wasn't equal to you intellectually. So it's your mates before dates was real love. Women, the concept of love was instinctual. It's like, of course, a woman feels this. She's a woman. It's in. It's of course, women. You of course you love your children. She's a woman. It's instinct. It's like, well, so do so do mother dogs and mother cats. You know, it's the it's the Renaissance that changes love from an intellectual idea that men have between other men, mates before dates, bros before hoes. Which is what basically 15-year-olds think of love, right? You're going to let a woman get between you and your, your, your mates? You're going to let a woman, a girl? And all of you had the same reaction, right? And I'm sure you ladies had the same reaction too. When one of your friends started dating somebody and they stopped hanging out and they stopped hanging around and they stopped answering your phone and they stopped texting you back. And you're like, oh, come on. I've had plenty of times when I was in junior high school and high school. And like, oh, we're all going to get together. All the guys are going to get together. And we go out and we go out for pizza, right? We all show up at the pizza place and it's, yo, where's Joe? He's like, oh, he's with his girlfriend. It's like, oh, what the hell? Come on. Or your friend is like, dude, I'm out with my girlfriend. You could come by if you want. We'll all hang out together. Like, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. But that's kind of, you get upset about that. Why? Because your concept of love is the friendship, not the, not the dating. Some, the girls will come and go. The boys will come and go. Oh, who cares? Oh, you're boy crazy. You have a crush. Uh, whatever. Right? But friends are forever. Right? Boys come and go, but friends are forever. And that's the idea. So what is the result? The result is the phalanx allowed untrained footmen to stand, fight, and survive for the first time. This is very different from Middle Eastern armies, from the chariot or the cavalry. If you were an untrained footman fighting Ramses II's chariots, you had about a 20-minute life expectancy. Sorry, but you did. You were in a ton of trouble. For the first time, farmers are important to the national defense. Right? Remember, farmers don't farmers farm, they don't fight. For the first time, they're able to take time. They're not a professional army yet, but they can join the army, fight for a day or a weekend, and go back to farming. For the first time. For the first time, farmers are the most important part of the army. So how do you get farmers to fight when you have no money? Well, the Greeks invent citizenship, which is a mutual connection between the city and its people. It's an exchange of rights for responsibilities. I am an American citizen. What does that mean? I get rights. I am protected by American law. I am protected by the ten, ten, um, 
amendments, right? Which give me freedoms, quote unquote. Now, a freedom is simply a space. A freedom is a space where the government says, I will not enter this, right? When I was a kid, my parents gave me the freedom, quote unquote, of my own bedroom. And the, the deal was, don't do anything crazy in there. And you could close the door and we won't enter without permission. That is your room. Did I own that room? No. I didn't pay rent for it. I didn't own it. If my mom wanted to go in it, she could have. I couldn't stop her. You get the under my roof. Notice it's the roof. It's not the room that matters. It's the roof. Right under my roof, you will follow my rules. So you gain certain. So a freedom is simply a space. It's a freedom isn't actually a thing. You can't hold a freedom. It's simply a space. Somebody else says, I won't enter that. But a right is something you could hold. I could hold my voting rights in my hand. I go and do it. I can go and the electoral people have my name on a list and they say, go right here. You can you here's your here's your ballot. I can hold it in exchange for responsibilities. Now, in America, you basically just have to follow the laws. Basically not not be found guilty of a of a crime and you pretty much can have your rights. But in the in the Greek world, you had to join the army. It was a way of bribing men to join the army. So they join the army and follow the laws and then gain rights. So what right do they want? To have a say in the government. They want to have a say in what happens. And so what usually happens is an assembly. An oligarchy. It's not the demos. It's not a democracy. It is an assembly. So a bunch of rich guys run it. And they they come. They bring everybody together. They bring all the men together. Usually in the theater. And they say, all right, here are our issues. A, B, and C. We would like to do X, Y, and Z. What do you think? And the assembly goes, okay. Or it says, no. This is essentially... I shouldn't say that. But this is essentially how a lot of groups work. They they elect a president of their group. They elect a board of trustees. And the trustees tell the group what they think the best thing to do is. And the assembly either says yes or no. The leaders ask the assembly permission on big decisions, wars and taxes. But the assembly doesn't decide. The assembly doesn't run itself. That's what a democracy is. Autonomia is the huge, most important part of this. Independence of each polis. Each polis makes their own rules, which means each polis has their own government, which means each polis has their own army, which means each polis has their own citizens with rights to vote. And they will fight to maintain those rights. Women can't join the army, so women are not citizens. They have no rights. Like in Babylon, they are treated as children to be protected. This is slightly less true as we talked about in Sparta. Now, the Spartan women cannot join the army. Spartan women cannot be in the assembly. But Spartan women were not supposed to be quiet either. They could voice their opinions. They just do so in a less, in an informal sort of way. 
Well, how do you get a democracy? Well, you get a democracy with navies. It's navies that bring democracies. Why? Because, one, they're rare. They're expensive, and they require an immense amount of manpower. The trireme, the ship, the warship of the Greeks. They don't invent the trireme. It's actually the Mesopotamian and Phoenician and Persian uh, empires that will invent the trireme, this warship. And it's three rows, it's three banks of rowers. It can get up to whatever it is, 10, 12 knots, pretty fast. But it required 200 men to row. And it had a ram at the front. So how do the Greeks fight a naval battle? They fight a naval battle, and the the, the um, Persians are blown away by this. They're like, this is dumb. But they fight a phalanx battle. Let's see. They run. They go as fast as they can. They run into you. Boom. Then they back up. And they, boom, run into you again. But each ship required 200 men. And they have this 50-pound, uh, 500-pound ram at the front. Excuse me. It's this 500-pound projectile ram that goes right through the hull. And then they back up and they hit it again to put, and they want to put holes in the hull, not to kill anybody. They don't care about killing people. No one can swim, so, but to sink the ship. And as soon as the ship starts to sink, it's useless in war, and you move on to your next ship. Athens, at its height, had 300 ships. Each ship required 200 men. That means Athens needed. 60,000 men as rowers, which means you have to hire the poor. You have to hire every man. Farmers, there aren't enough farmers anymore. Farmers are going to want to be in the phalanx. That's where you get the armor and you make your own armor. And that's where the middle class guys are. But who is rowing? Anybody can row. That's where the poor guys are going to row. And you're going to have to pay them because they can't work for four months of the year. They're at sea from mid-May to early September. So you're going to have to pay them. Remember, we talked about the problem of the commons. You have to pay these guys to row. Now, let me ask you, ladies, are you happy when your man gets off the ship after four months of rowing eight hours a day, seven days a week, and subsisting on a high-protein, mostly fish, low-fat diet. Or simple-fat diet, because it's olive oil, olives. Are you happy? With that, it's, it's, there are very little carbs. It's a low-carb, high-protein, high-simple-fat diet. Very Mediterranean. Are you happy? You bet you're happy because they are ripped. These guys get off their ship four months later and they are ripped. They're in their 20s to their early 40s. They've been paid. They got money in their pocket. They got confidence. Why? Because they are badass. They're ripped. They're young. And they are the most important thing protecting the city. And what do they want? They want a say in the government. And that creates a democracy. Anyone can row. Now, how, what does a democracy do that's different from the assembly? The democracy 
The assembly is sovereign. The assembly runs itself. The assembly chooses its own leader, chooses its own board, chooses its own way of doing things. So what does it mean? It's like the class choosing its own tests. So you're taking my class. Who makes the test? I do. Who determines when the tests are going to be? I do. Who determines what's on the tests? I do. Who determines how long the test is going to be? I do. Who determines how much that test is going to count for? I do. Right? Am I a king? No. No, I'm not a king. I can't do whatever I want. I'm not even a lord in a feudalistic system. I am the head of an assembly. We are not a democracy. We are kind of like the Roman assembly. We're not the Senate because we're not equals, right? I'm not a council. And you are the people. You are not representing the people like a tribune. So we're like the Spartan assembly. I am in charge. Who put me in charge? The school did. A higher authority did. But do I need your acquiescence? When I say we're going to have three tests, what do I need you to do? I need you to say, okay. When I say the test will be every five weeks or every two weeks, I need you to say, okay. But in a democracy, you can say, whoa, 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 professor. No, 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 no. Everybody, everybody, what about, let's talk about these tests. I think three tests are too much. What do you guys think? I think they're too much. I don't think so. I think we should have five tests. I think we're, hey, what, what, well, there's, there's 50 questions on these tests. What about if we just make it one question? Well, hey, let's make it true, false. All right, professor, write this down. All right, we're going to have a vote. Right, one true false question. Uh, we probably should make up the question, right? Uh, does the sun rise in the morning? Yeah, that's the question, professor. That's what you got to write down. That's what the test is going to be. Let's vote on it. Vote everyone in chat. Everyone, yes, let's see the hands. Okay, anyone opposed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, the eyes have it. That's what we got, professor. Go back to we'll talk about whatever you want. And that's how a democracy works. A demo- That's why when people like America is not a democracy. We're a republic. We're the Roman Republic. The founding fathers didn't want us anywhere near a democracy. Because in a democracy, the assembly decides what we're going to decide, what the rules are going to be. It runs itself. It makes its own rules. You see this from time to time with journalists when they talk about the Senate. And they're like, the Senate rules are so weird. Like, they could do X, but they can't do Y. Why is that? And I'm like, because the Senate makes its own rules. Isn't that hard? The Senate is sovereign. The Senate decides its own rules for itself. If it wants every Tuesday to be Taco Tuesday, it's Taco Tuesday for the Senate. The Senate makes it, the Senate is sovereign. It doesn't answer to anybody. The Supreme Court is sovereign. It makes its own rules. Nobody comes in and tells the Supreme Court how to run itself. It makes, it has nine justices, and it says we're going to have a vote on what we're going to do, how we're going to run ourselves, and that's the way it's done. That's a democracy. But America is not a democracy. We are a Roman Republic where our representatives represent the people and the will of the people. 
and our representatives stand in for us. But in the democracy, I stand in for myself. The closest America gets to a democracy is the jury, is the jury pool. Because once the jury goes into their room, they decide for themselves. They get their rules and they get their limits and then they go in and they talk about themselves and they decide their own leader. They decide their own foreman and they could call on the judge and be like, judge, I need this much information. And they could call on witnesses and be like, I need a clarification on this. They are in charge. And the grand jury, a grand, if you've ever sat in a grand jury, you have even more power. Most grand juries don't know that they, most prosecutors tell the jury what to do and they're like, ah, this is nice and compliant. But technically, technically, the grand jury can tell the prosecutor what to do. The, the grand jury does not work for the judge or the prosecutor. The judge and the prosecutor work for the grand jury. The jury, the people are sovereign. They just don't know it. That's why I've never been on a jury. I get kicked off. Why? I'm too smart. I have been in jury pools since um, 25 years old or so. And they're like, I'm a PhD professor of history. And they're like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> no. And you watch them and they kick off all these people. And you and in the jury pool, people will be like, why are they kicking these people off? That guy's smart. And like, they don't want a smart person. Because that smart person might not do what they're told. They might think for themselves. They want people they can, they can mold. They can influence. And I'm not saying that's bad. That's the way our jury system is built. It's the way the Romans built their, their system. It's the way it's built. You, you try to choose. The, the prosecutor and the defense are trying to choose their jury. So what they definitely don't want is people who will tell them what to do. So, so that's where we're going to end. I know our Greek lessons are long. It's a lot of information. There are four classes. It's two weeks. And for the Greeks, they're the, my favorite part of the class. And so there's a lot there. So be safe. Take care. If you can, row because you'll be jacked. It will be awesome. Um, watch the video if you can stomach it of the January 6th riot and find the phalanx battle it is horrible to watch but instructive to see that this is happening and then it's in, kind of infuriating to hear the commentators be like it was like a medieval battle I'm like Where, what are you talking about please take my class just take my class so you don't see something like that it wasn't a medieval battle it was an ancient Greek battle and that's what I want you to get from this class. I, I want you to go and do your job and be awesome at it and not say something to lots of people that somebody out there is like, boy, that was dumb. I want you to be awesome. So be safe. Take care. Stay healthy. Don't get into a phalanx battle. Row. Join a democracy. Remember, you're sovereign. You have rights. And you're awesome. Thank you.